That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, November 18th, 2019. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, the Mustang Mach-E wants to out Tesla Tesla. John Legere is stepping down from T-Mobile. .org domain names might be getting a lot more expensive soon, and the reviews on Google Stadia are decidedly mixed, but at least it works. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Ford is taking a run at Tesla and taking a run at attempting to create the first truly mass-market electric vehicle in the U.S., Last night in L.A., the company unveiled the Mustang Mach-E, an electric SUV with up to 300 miles of range. The Mach-E has a starting sticker price of $43,895, and it's coming in late 2020, quoting The Verge. Unlike a lot of the electric competition from automakers like Audi, Mercedes-Benz, or Jaguar, the Mustang Mach-E will be offered in a slew of variants and trims to an almost dizzying degree. Ford will sell versions of the five-seater SUV that can travel 210 miles on a full battery and also ones that go to 300 miles. One of the Mustang Mach-E options will beat most sports cars from 0 to 60 miles per hour, while others will just barely edge out a Chevy Bolt. Some ship in late 2020 and some in spring 2021. None are exactly cheap. The most affordable one starts at $43,895, which is a few thousand dollars more than the current average selling price of a vehicle in the U.S. But buyers of Ford's electric and hybrid vehicles are still eligible for the full $7,500 federal tax credit, something Ford was quick to point out Sunday night. Depending on the state people live in, government incentives could help reduce the ultimate cost by around $10,000 in the U.S. For people who can afford it, there's a lot on offer. For those who can't, Ford hopes the Mustang Mach-E is something to aspire to as the company rolls out more electric vehicles in the coming years, end quote. Indeed, as I think I recently mentioned, this is all part of Ford's multi-year $11 billion pivot to electric vehicles. Obviously, by leveraging the legendary Mustang brand with this first foray, Ford is looking to make a statement. And by offering five different versions, eventually, Ford hopes there is a little something for everybody. Some details and bells and whistles about the car and its design. There is 29 cubic feet of storage in the back trunk, but also... 4.8 cubic feet of storage in the front trunk that literally doubles as a cooler. Since EVs don't need as much direct air cooling, the Mustang Mach-E doesn't have a grill so much as it has a nose. The interior dash is mostly touchscreen and digital, including a 15.5-inch vertical touchscreen display. Obviously, journalists only got to gawk at the model on the stage and take pictures, but here was Sean O'Kane's take in The Verge. Quote, Comparisons to Tesla are hard to avoid when it comes to electric cars, and the Mustang Mach-E is no exception. It's hard not to immediately size Ford's EV up against the forthcoming Model Y, which has similar specs and will be released on a similar schedule. 
I also couldn't help but spend part of the night thinking about how Ford revealed the Mustang Mach-E at the same municipal airport hangars where Tesla unveiled the Semi and second-generation Roadster just two years and one day before, and how we were right next to SpaceX headquarters where Elon Musk will unveil Tesla's Cybertruck pickup truck in just a few days. By the way, shortly after the event ended, Musk tweeted, quote, Congratulations to Ford for the new electric Mustang SUV. Sustainable slash electric cars are the future. Excited to see this announcement from Ford as it will encourage other car makers to go electric too, he wrote. But no matter what Ford's Mustang Mach-E winds up being benchmarked against or what fights people want to pick about its looks or name, I'm very glad this is the direction the company went as opposed to a slightly better electric focus. That we're already knee-deep in these conversations and arguments feels like progress of a sort as opposed to a few years ago when getting people to talk about electric cars, let alone feel something about them, felt like pulling teeth or just plain impossible, end quote. I mentioned British self-driving startup Wave recently, which came out of stealth with a new methodology for training autonomous vehicles using reinforcement learning, simulation, and computer vision, and which maintains that sensors like LiDAR are ultimately unnecessary. Well, today... Wave announced a $20 million Series A round to prove that out, led by Eclipse Ventures and with participation by Uber's chief scientist and the UC Berkeley robotics professor who pioneered deep reinforcement learning. Just a reminder about what makes Wave different from VentureBeat. Quote, founded out of Cambridge in 2017, Wave's core premise is that the big breakthrough in self-driving cars will come from better AI brains rather than more sensors or hand-coded rules. The company said that it trains its autonomous driving system using simulated environments and then transfers that knowledge into the real world where it emulates how humans adapt to conditions in real time. Wave's Systems learn from each safety driver intervention to understand why the driver had to intervene, bypassing HD maps, LiDAR, and other sensors that have become synonymous with the burgeoning autonomous vehicle movement. It is worth noting here that Wave's machine learning algorithms can work in tandem with any hardware or sensors if that is how an automaker wants to use them. But Wave's central pitch is that autonomous cars should be able to learn new environments just like humans do, end quote. One of the most colorful executives in all of tech is leaving his post. John Legere is stepping down as T-Mobile CEO on May 1st, 2020, with T-Mobile president and COO Mike Sievert to succeed him. Legere's next move is not known, and it is also unknown what will happen to Legere's extensive wardrobe of magenta-colored clothing. Quoting CNBC, CNBC and the Wall Street Journal reported last week, WeWork has spoken to Legere about taking over as CEO following Adam Newman's ouster, but CNBC later reported that Legere is not taking the job, according to people familiar with the matter. On a conference call Monday, Legere denied he was ever in talks to be the WeWork CEO. Legere was named T-Mobile CEO in 2012 and made a number of aggressive moves to grow the company's wireless subscribers as it faced steep competition from its larger rivals AT&T and Verizon. As other carriers pushed customers to sign up for wireless plans with data caps, Legere created unlimited wireless plans for T-Mobile and offered to pay termination fees for customers who switched over. Eventually, the rest of the industry followed suit and offered unlimited plans as well. Legere was also responsible for bringing the iPhone to T-Mobile for the first time, and he went through multiple merger talks with Sprint over the years before finally locking the deal down in April 2018. 
The company expects to complete the merger next year, end quote. Quick follow-up to a story from last week. HP's board of directors has unanimously rejected Xerox's nearly $33 billion cash and stock offer to acquire HP. Quoting CNBC, Xerox had offered HP $22 per share in its takeover bid for the company. The bid consisted of 77% cash and 23% stock, or $17 in cash and 0.137 Xerox shares for each HP share. Quote, in reaching this determination, the board also considered the highly conditional and uncertain nature of the proposal, including the potential impact of outsized debt levels on the combined company stock. The board wrote in a letter to John Vistian, Xerox's CEO, quote, we note the decline of Xerox's revenue from $10.2 billion to $9.2 billion on a trailing 12-month basis since June 2018, which raises significant questions for us regarding the trajectory of your business and future prospects, the board wrote, end quote. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. If you're a marketer, you probably got into marketing because you like being creative. If you're a developer, it's because you like building cool stuff. But too often, marketers and developers are stuck with old-school content management systems that make it harder to do that. Storyblock, a content management system, is here to help. Teams from Netflix, Tesla, and Oatly are among the 200,000 Storyblock users who switched from old-school systems like Sitecore, Drupal, and AEM to Storyblock. Why? Storyblock makes it easier for marketers and developers to build websites, apps, and other digital experiences and simply get shit done. For example, Storyblock has a new feature called the Ideation Room. The Ideation Room is a central space within Storyblock where you can collaborate with your teammates to come up with new ideas and refine them with the help of AI. If you want to ship your work in less time and stop wrestling with your CMS, try Storyblock for free today at Get dot storyblock.com slash ride home. That's get dot S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-K dot com slash ride home. This sucks. There's no other way to put it. A private equity company has acquired the Public Industry Registry, the top-level domain operator responsible for the dot org domain names. The seller was the supposedly nonprofit Internet Society, and the buyer was Ethos Capital. Quoting The Verge, This move will make 
The Public Industry Registry, previously a nonprofit domain registry, officially part of a for-profit company, which certainly seems at odds with what .org might represent to some. Originally, .org was an alternative to the .com that was earmarked for commercial entities, which lent itself to nonprofit use. That's not all. On June 30th, ICANN, the nonprofit that oversees all domain names on the internet, agreed to remove price caps on rates for .org domain names, which were previously pretty cheap. Seems like something a for-profit company might want. Removing price caps wasn't exactly a popular idea when it first was proposed on March 18th. According to Review Signal, only six of the more than 3,000 public comments on the proposal were in favor of the change. In an open letter published on May 1st, just days after the comment period had closed, PIR said that it had, quote, no specific plans for any price increases for .org. But that was then... And if the rates for .org domains do go up in the future, it could affect nonprofits and institutions that rely on low domain name fees to maintain their websites, end quote. By the way, in case you didn't know, .info and .biz domain names had their price caps removed this year as well. As at Network Demonic tweeted, quote, Yet another once public chunk of the Internet is sold off to a commercial investment fund, end quote. This is eminently logical. ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, is apparently in talks with record companies to launch a music streaming service as early as next month. The plans are apparently to launch the service first in Brazil, India, and Indonesia, quoting the Financial Times. ByteDance is in talks with the world's largest record companies, Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music, for global licensing deals to include their songs on its new music subscription service, according to people familiar with the matter. Music executives are keen to make money from TikTok, which is free to use. They view a new ByteDance app as a welcome addition to the music streaming market, where a number of companies, including Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, offer a similar catalog of songs. In addition to on-demand music, the planned ByteDance streaming app would include a library of short video clips that listeners could search through and sync to songs as they listen according to music executives who received demos of the service. Users could send these clips to their friends, as the app aims to encourage sharing and virality, and is designed for mobile phones with vertical-sized videos, end quote. No word on pricing, though the speculation is that ByteDance would probably want to come in under the $10 a month that Spotify and others charge. Finally today... And FYI, that Google Stadia is launching tomorrow as a bit of surprise. The gaming streaming service will have 10 more games at launch than originally announced. Or as Kotaku headlined it, Google Panics adds 10 more games to Stadia's launch lineup. Yes, as we've discussed, people were preparing to be underwhelmed by the initial service what with originally only 12 games available, now 22, and a whole bunch of promised features not available, at least for a while. Sean Hollister has a first impressions review up, and his bottom line is, yes, Stadia works. It's a minimum viable product. But, quote, there's no reason anyone should buy into Stadia right now. Google has made sure of that, partly by under-delivering at launch and partly with a pricing scheme that sees you paying three times for hardware, for the service, for games, just to be an early adopter. But the nice thing is that no one's forcing you to either. Early adopters know who they are, and they'll hopefully be subsidizing a better experience for the rest of us while helping Google work out the kinks. 
The technology works reasonably well, and Google's gadgets can all be automatically updated over the air, end quote. He gives it a 5 out of 10 rating. And at Vice, Patrick Klepek echoed Sean by saying, quote, I've spent the last week trying to judge Stadia without worrying so much about what it doesn't have. Achievements, iOS support, family sharing, hell, more games. Those are all eminently solvable problems. Those will, in all likelihood, get fixed soon. But it doesn't go to the heart of what Stadia is trying to accomplish and what's increasingly becoming a race between a number of different companies betting the farm on being able to stream games. Again, Stadia's pitch is simple. Touch a button and start playing games on just about any device in your house. Judged on that, Stadia is a success. It's not perfect, but as a parent who values efficiency and convenience in a way I didn't used to, it was convincing enough. Should you sign up for Stadia today? No. Does it work? It does. It works. End quote. And Eurogamer called it the best game streaming yet, but far from ready. Quote, As a technological statement, Stadia impresses with the best image quality and latency I've seen from a streaming platform, but there's definitely scope for improvement from a stability perspective. And I'm not sure the question of what happens when someone else taps into your bandwidth has been adequately resolved. Audio stutter and wobbly connection and even a 200 Mbps hookup had very occasional slowdown. Games can't buffer to iron out these issues in the way that movies and TV can. There's the sense that many of the challenges in streaming games have been improved massively since the on-live days, but bandwidth is still very much a precious commodity for most users, and Stadia at its best requires 20 gigabytes of the stuff for an hour of play at its highest quality level. Perhaps more pressing is the value proposition. Netflix works because the subscription model is easy to understand. You pay extra for more screens and UHD, but that's it. Stadia is the same in terms of demanding a premium for UHD, even if key titles don't seem to be rendering at 4K, except that you're still paying top-end prices for your games on top of that. Combined with the feeling that the platform and the ecosystem is still some way off completion, and I do feel that it's perhaps too early for Stadia to be rolling out as a full service, especially when games are limited and the all-important platform exclusives are very thin on the ground, end quote. That is all for today. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at BrianMCC. The show subreddit is r slash ride home. And actually, we're a handful of folks away from hitting a thousand subscribers there. So hit that up if you never have. And if you want to support the work that I do every day directly, the bottom link in the show notes will allow you to subscribe to the ad free feed right there in your podcast app. Talk to you tomorrow.